You're listening to the 2009 Jack Straw Writers Program. Writer Madeline Ostrander is interviewed by program curator Donna Miskolta. In a sense, when you're writing, you're lobbying for change. But what came first, the need to write or the need to see change happen? I had a, a real connection with the natural world, and I spent a lot of time by myself, kind of out in the woods. And I think very early I had the sense that I was, both that I was writing because I needed to have my own voice heard and because I was deeply drawn to writing, but also that I was deeply drawn to writing in ways that changed how people thought. Stories are really what change us profoundly, are the things that make it possible for us to make new kinds of decisions and change the way that, that we structure the world. You write in your artist statement, land and people are often woven into a single story, and where the landscape is damaged, so are its inhabitants. Can you talk about your literary technique when weaving land and people so that they are a seamless part of the narrative? I think that people make more sense when they're in a particular context. There's things that you can see in the landscape when you look at it. If you, if you go, for instance, out to the Midwest, you can see where areas have eroded, where places have been plowed. You can find places where prairie used to be, and you can see where the plants are still, some of the plants are still growing there. And so you can see the histories of people written into the landscape. And when you start to observe that, then you, you know, begin to weave them together and kind of understand how they created each other. You know, we think of ourselves as being separate from the landscape, but we're actually very connected to the landscape. And the more we realize that, the more we can understand how to reconnect and how to change and how to build sustainability. Now you'll hear selections from Madeline's live reading at Jack Straw Productions. I'm going to read a couple short prose pieces. Both of them are a little bit about summer and a lot about politics and place. And the first one is about my, a trip that my husband and I made to Arizona that didn't quite go as we hoped or planned. It's called A Deal with the Desert. <laughs> there are spirals of errors and uneven luck that leave a person in the hands of the Sonoran Desert. This is what I think as the sky darkens over the saguaros, their arms raised as if to make a meager offering. An hour has passed since a rock pierced our oil pan and our car engine shut off on the Ajo Mountain Road, a route that loops like a riverbed, twisted and uneven through Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument in Arizona, 20 miles or so from the Mexican border. A bat turns pinwheels against the intransigent indigo sky. The choya cactuses, luminous with white silver needles, look like ghosts. My stomach is hollow. My cell phone beeps, low on charge. It is 7.15. We first called the park ranger at 5 o'clock, and the tow truck was due between 6.30 and 7. I am uneasily imagining us stranded and heat-sick in the cactuses, even though... We are on a major park road, and our white rental car is visible for miles. We are in no real danger. I bunch up my arms and legs like a pill bug. Worst case scenario, my husband says. We just camp here overnight. I nod. There are worse odds one could face here. 
traipsing by foot toward the promise of a job in construction or fruit picking or hauling loads of drugs through the heat. There are fewer making the journey now than in years past, but thousands still believe the desert crossing is better than the choices left to them on the other side of the border. I think of the hundreds camped out in the Sonoran tonight. Are they frightened or hopeful? Will they find what they need? I am fortunate, a native English speaker with a job, a U.S. passport, and a cell phone, which begins to ring. I can see where you lost all your oil. I'm surprised you made it as far as you did, says the gritty male voice. He shows up minutes later with a flatbed tow truck, a thick-shouldered man with reddish hair. He says he can see that we're not goddamn Bill and Melinda Gates. He's just doing us a favor. But he asked $700 for driving us roughly 150 miles to Phoenix, or half that, to drop us in Ajo, the nearest town to the north. He says, no mechanic in Ajo will touch our car until Monday. The rental car is due on Sunday when our flight leaves back to Seattle. It's impossible to know whether this would be a fair price in daylight in different circumstances. We'll start driving, and I'll let you think about it, he says. <laughs> on the first stretch of the drive, he tells us, he beat up a former tenant of a rental house he owned in New Hampshire when the tenant left his cat to die on the first floor. There's a warrant for my arrest there, he says. He says he runs a portable toilet business and an auto mechanic shop. He stops at a gas station and buys us sodas. When we can't get cell phone reception to reach our insurance company, he drives us to his house. We'll just hang out here while you straighten things out. My husband makes a series of calls to determine that our coverage excludes rocks and oil pans and engine failure. The driver's kitchen smells stale. In the darkest corner of his living room is a large cage filled with tree branches. Sugar gliders, he says, and hands me a leaflet on the subject. Australian marsupials, illegal in some states. The cage stirs, and squirrel-shaped animals climb the wire mesh on their toenails and stare bug-eyed at me. I shiver and walk back into the kitchen. Here's the thing, the driver says to us. It's getting late, so either we go to Phoenix or I drop you at a motel here in Ajo and you find your own way. My husband and I look at each other. <coughs> what else can we do, he says. As we start along the highway, I watch the driver's thick hands on the wheel. I ask him questions to keep myself alert. I think to myself, the desert strips your choices. You take the help of the people in front of you because they are what you have. The driver who avenges cats with fistfights isn't a bet I'd normally take. But there are worse odds. $2,000 to a coyote to cross the border, a single person, and an overstretched hope between you and the unforgiving Sonoran. The driver says his wife works for the border patrol. A desk job now, but she used to be out driving an ATV. The illegals follow certain routes to waterholes, and then they just wait for them. A lot of times when the coyotes sense danger, they just leave the whole group alone to die in the desert. All that so some Mexican can get a goddamn job washing dishes for $5 an hour. And the feds are down here spending a billion dollars to put up a fence and surveillance. I'll tell you what, our little community has done well from all that money. I say, 
It's ironic. And slowly, they could spend that same money fighting poverty. I wait for the driver to accuse me of naivete, but he says, yeah, some people think the immigrants bring bad things with them, crime and drugs, and maybe some of them do, but I think most of them bring a lot of good. An hour later, the driver drops us in our defunct car under glaring lamplight in the rental lot in Phoenix. He mutters thank you and waves his hand halfway as if casting us off and drives away. This next one is based on work that I did on an Indian reservation in eastern South Dakota. I became friends with some of the kids who live there, and this is about one little girl who became my friend and a little bit of her story, and it's called Dina's Place. Dina takes me down to the river, to a place behind her house on the reservation. I want to show you my secret spot, she says. Come on. The Big Sioux River smells like piss some days, or wasting body. In my second summer working for the tribe, I have come to know the river's disease, how the wetlands have been bled dry to make way for corn and beans, how the river's bowels south at Sioux Falls are plugged by a dam, how the current has risen and the river has become an angry, ravenous, stinking beast. It eats itself, erodes down seven, eight feet in places, the grassless muddy banks at a near 90 degree angle. But today, the water smells not like urine, but like green things, like water, sweat, and summer. And here near Dina's spot, the bank is gentler, a slight step down. Dina looks five or six to me, but she is eight. She is small for her age. She moves like a lizard flitting over the twigs and rotting logs. She expects me to be as limber as she, skirting the stinging nettle, a collapsed barbed wire fence, the thorny gooseberry, and the stems of cord grass that lash my ankles. She looks back quizzically as I pause at the edge of a log and worry for the sandals I would not have worn if I had planned this. Dina is a terror, her aunts tell me. A taunter, hitter, hair yanker. Dina's a mean girl, one says. I don't want my daughter to play with her anymore. <clears throat> She is exactly the sort of girl who might have terrorized me when I, too, was lizard-sized, slighter than the other girls, unnoticed. Dina has found a way to be noticed. It is survival, something she learned in the years since they found her as a baby in an abandoned car at the casino. Her mother was from another reservation. She had a drug addiction and had left Dina and disappeared. Ladies from Sioux Falls hobbled off the buses and into the bingo hall without detecting Dina, a football field away at the edge of a parking lot. The weather was cool enough that she did not overheat and die. When someone finally found her, she was weak and infected with worms. Her adoptive father gave her refuge here with his horses, his farm, and another adoptee, an 11-year-old boy who moves through spaces like an explosion, the father cooks them hamburger dinners, and buys them bicycles, piano lessons, and passes to the pool. Dina's mother occasionally reappears and threatens to take Dina back. The aunts say Dina gets sassy when her mother is around. The mother is bad news, they say. 
Dina and I arrive at a fallen tree that was probably a green ash before its skin rotted away. Now it is a city of fungus and termites with a few places where one could seat a small body. Otherwise, the place is nothing to speak of. Grass, weeds, a lot of flies, damp air, the brown river, sun speckling through the trees. This is my spot, Dina says proudly. Her spot. Dina splashes in the water. She shows me rocks. She hums to herself. I don't know why I have been let into this child's space where other adults would surely not be escorted. I am her mother's age, but without the aging factors of abuse, addiction, and pregnancy, I look young and white and foreign. I am mysterious, a fairy godmother. But I remember what it is to be a child and I listen when Dina speaks. I sense that Dina's space is as sacred as any, more perhaps than the site of the old Indian camp along the river, more sacred even than the place where Dina's father goes to pray, or where the elders have vision quests or gather sage. I know what it is to have a space where no one hears you but yourself. That place in the trees, in the darkness, beneath the stairs, behind the fence, down the ravine or along the river, the place where the other voices fade away, where no one demands that you be the daughter they've always wanted or become the hope, the curse, or the one who is to blame. To be in this place is to know you are alive despite it all. And I think Dina needs to stake a place on this earth. And she has brought me to be witness to the fact that she is here, just here. At last, someone is listening. There is no end to this story, just a thousand other quiet moments along the river. In my last memory of Dina, she stood on the freshly mowed lawn, an unwashed old beagle beside her, and asked when I'd be back. I said, I didn't know. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2009 curator of this program is Donna Miskolta. Music performed by Amy Rubin and Dawn Clement and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure, Tom Stiles, and CJ Lazenby. Narrator is Amy Broomhall, and executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.